You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. We have gay marriage here in the United States of America, as I think everyone is now aware but we still have our religious idiots religious idiot of the day conservative activist ew jackson who friendly atheist drew our attention to this in an interview with WorldNet daily's david somebody or other said that we know same-sex sex we know homosexuality is unnatural because little children find it icky that if you let two little kids look at two men kissing or you explain gay sex to them they go ew gross of course, if you explain where babies come from to small children, daddy puts his penis in mommy's vagina and moves it around until something leaps out of it and then that becomes you, kids typically go, ew, gross. Rarely when you explain heterosexual sex and where babies come from to a small child, do you get a reaction like, oh my goodness, doesn't that sound lovely? I'm looking forward to experiencing sweet, sweet heterosexual intercourse after marrying an opposite sex partner who, like me, will be a virgin on our wedding day. Kids don't say that when you explain straight sex to them. They say... Ick. Little kids, even the ones who grow up to be straight, they think sex, gay, straight, everything in between is completely gross and utterly disgusting. And, you know, they have a point. And if we're going to start declaring things unnatural because kids find the Mickey, then we're going to have to get the broccoli out of the supermarket. So, yeah, we still have our anti-gay religious idiots here in the United States and we tolerate them. They're allowed to go on their little radio shows and say their very stupid things. And then free speech, we're allowed to critique the very stupid things they say on our little podcasts. And, 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 tolerance. I'm tolerating this religious bigot saying these stupid things, but I'm, of course, responding. In Australia, they have their anti-gay religious bigots, too, who are all up in arms, and everyone's paying attention to every idiot thing they say right now, because Australia is having a plebiscite on gay marriage. A plebiscite is a vote of sorts. It's a mail-in ballot, and everybody gets to say yes or no to same-sex marriage in Australia where public opinion polls already show that same-sex marriage enjoys overwhelming popular support in the 70-80% range. But the cowardly shitbags who run the government in Australia won't just allow Parliament to have a vote on same-sex marriage. They are going to go hide behind this plebiscite. They're asking the public for its opinion, and it's non-binding. The public could vote 98% for same-sex marriage, and it doesn't then force the Australian government to enact it. It's not an up or down vote on legalizing same-sex marriage. It's just how you feeling about same-sex marriage, which is data that is already available to the douchebag cowardly politicians who run Australia because public opinion polls. Australia is spending $158 million on this plebiscite. The Ballots have been mailed to the public. They have until November 7th to get them back. And all of this money is being spent to basically recreate the data that already exists. It's a public poll and public polling already exists. But they're having a vote and it's bringing out Australia's conservative Christian crazies, one of whom tennis legend Margaret Court said today that gay people, same-sex couples, they want to destroy marriage and not just marriage – if the plebiscite passes and if Australia legalizes same-sex marriage, there will be no Mother's Day, no Father's Day, no Easter, no Christmas. 
if only there was some way to test this theory of Margaret Courts and all these other crazy Australian anti-queer bigots. If only same-sex marriage was legal anyplace else. And we could see if they're still having Mother's Day, Father's Day, Easter, and Christmas in those places. Hey, wait, wait, wait. What was that? Uh, this Justin, same-sex marriage, legal in New Zealand, right next door. Also legal in Canada, fellow Commonwealth member, the United Kingdom, Spain, France, now Germany, the United States, the Netherlands, Sweden, Lots of places same-sex marriage is legal. So this has been tested. We, we have test cases out there in the world available to these hysterical anti-queer bigots like Margaret Court in Australia that shows that not only does same-sex marriage not extinguish or destroy or end Christmas, but lots of same-sex couples. And you can dig into Instagram to find evidence of this. Lots of married same-sex couples Celebrate Christmas, put up fucking Christmas trees, have no interest in destroying marriage, wanting to be a part of marriage, but no interest also in ending Christmas necessarily. In my Instagram account, you can dig through and you will find evidence that Terry and I celebrate Christmas as a married same-sex couple. There's a lot of idiocy sloshing around right now. Familiar idiocy. That's what's so frustrating about following the news in Australia. It's like we have to have this argument again. Not to drag myself into it, but there was an Australian senator whose name I don't remember and I'm not in a Googling mood who attacked me because of monogamish and argued that same-sex couples shouldn't be allowed to marry because this hoary old saw gay male couples aren't so into monogamy. And if you are in Australia and you are having arguments with family and they bring this up or they bring up religion as the reason to oppose same-sex marriage rights or Children as a reason to oppose same-sex marriage rights, I gift you this. You don't have to be monogamous, have children, or be religious to be married if you're straight. These are not standards that straight people apply to themselves or each other when straight people apply for marriage licenses or get married. You can be married and not monogamous so long as you're straight in Australia. You can be married and have kids or not if you're straight. You can be married and get married at church or married at a courthouse if you're straight. It's up to you. Marriage is whatever the two people in it say that it is. And people who condemn same-sex couples who wish to marry on the grounds of religion, children, and monogamy, what they're telling you, telling straight Australians who may be listening to me right now, is they're not comfortable with straight marriage. With marriage as straight people have redefined it and practice it now. It's not gay couples. I can't believe we're saying all this again. If you listen to podcasts from eight years ago, you can hear me saying this then during the marriage debate in the United States. Marriage is not being redefined by same-sex couples. Recognizing the right of same-sex couples to marry now is to recognize how thoroughly straight people redefined marriage. Marriage used to be a property transaction where one man took possession of another man's daughter, his possession, his daughter, and that transubstantiated in that moment and that became a new possession called wife. And to their credit, straight people about 100 years ago took them a long time to figure this shit out, decided that marriage shouldn't be a property transaction and that marriage should be the legal union of two autonomous individuals. Period. The end. The reason you can't make a rational argument against same-sex couples marrying without leaning on Leviticus, because then you have to argue against straight marriage. You have to argue against the way straight people marry now. So Australia... We are with you. If you are voting in this plebiscite, and you should vote in this plebiscite, all registered voters in Australia are getting these ballots in the mail. Please mail them in before November 7th when they are due, even though this is just a popularity contest, even though this isn't necessarily going to result in Australia joining the Marriage Equality Club with Canada, 
New Zealand, the United Kingdom, the United States, most of Mexico, most of Europe. But it's going to be hard for the Australian government after wasting $158 million to continue to oppose legalizing same-sex marriage if indeed the plebiscite comes in big for equality. As I know it will, as I trust it will, as it will if all Australians who support equality for all and the right to marry for all get their ballots in by November 7th. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your Q and lots of my big fat A. And coming up on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, Mark Joseph Stern from Slate joins us to discuss anti-Semitism on the left. All that on today's show. Hey, Dan, a longtime listener. Thanks for what you do. I have a question. I am a straight mid-20s female. Just started dating this awesome guy, but he is my first uncircumcised dick. Yeah, I, I feel like it's like mostly the same, but I was just wondering if you had any like tips, tricks, things I should know. I'm just kind of out of my element here, and you're obviously the one to ask. There's really not that much of a difference between being with a cut guy versus an uncut guy. There's a little bit more skin. You may need to use a little bit less lube. There's kind of a built-in masturbation sleeve on an uncut dick. You can grip the skin and move it up and down the shaft, including the foreskin. Uh, if there's a problem with this foreskin, if it doesn't fully retract, uh, that is an issue he needs to take up with his urologist. But otherwise – He'll get an erection. You can or should be able to roll the foreskin fully back and expose the glands. Guys who are uncut, typically the glands, the head of the cock, a little bit more sensitive since it's wrapped up all the time. It's not rattling around inside their underpants for however many years this person has been alive, unprotected, scraping against the sandpapery cotton. So yeah, uncut guys tend to be a little bit more sensitive. You may not be able to use your raspy cat tongue attachment for your Hitachi magic wand or whatever on that. But otherwise, it functions pretty much the same way a cut dick functions. And as always, if you have questions about somebody's junk, how it works, how they like it to be handled or touched or stroked or prodded or poked or licked, you should ask them. I can give you some general pointers, a little bit of general guidance, but the expert on that uncut dick that you are going to be climbing on top of is the guy attached to it. Just like the expert on... Your pussy is you, and men should err on the side, and women and non-binaries err on the side of inquiring of their female partners what works for them, what feels good, what doesn't feel good. You should make the same good faith effort with your male partner. Want to know best practices for his dick? Ask him. Hi, Dan. This is a purely empirical question. I was having a conversation the other night with a friend who is a high school teacher. And she was commenting on the number of her students who show up to class with hickeys on their necks, which led us into this discussion about the fact that we all remember giving and getting hickeys in high school. But as far as I know, it's a behavior that seems to stop abruptly right around age 18, 19. And we're trying to figure out why. Like, there doesn't seem to be a kink community out there devoted to the hickey and it's a sexual behavior that seems to come instinctively to younger people. So you'd think that there would still be people, adults who'd be into this wildly into it. And maybe we're missing something, but there doesn't seem to be. So the question is, first of all, are we wrong? Are there whole fetish communities really, really into the hickey, the art of the hickey? And if we're not wrong, then the question is, why does this seem to stop so abruptly Besides the fact that it would be visible at work, 
you know what I mean, around age 18, 19, 20. Thanks. Bye. The visibility of the hickey is, of course, the point of the hickey for a young person. It is a signal, it's a sexual signal that says, I am doing this. I am having the sex, the least neck gnawing section of the sex. I'm desirable. I am desired. I have a partner. I have what perhaps you don't have. It's a signal sent to other classmates in the high school environment about your sexual and social success. And then and then you outgrow the need to send those sorts of signals because you reach a, a stage, you reach an age, 18-ish, where you can just assume that most everyone is sexually active. At 15, 16, 17, that assumption doesn't fly. Most people aren't sexually active. So those who are and who are proud of it want to put up the hickey bat signal and let everybody know that they're getting it. They're getting their next nod, if nothing else. And people don't need to do that once they're in college because everybody – in theory at least, is presumed to be getting it. That said, if a thing exists, someone somewhere is masturbating about it right now. I'm sure if you went to Tumblr and started to dig around the Tumblr porn wormholes, you will eventually find a Tumblr page run by an adult that is dedicated to the hickey. Somewhere, someone somewhere is jacking off about that. But there doesn't seem to be a large hickey fetish community or a prominent one, and you don't see a lot of hickeys at fetish parties or play parties or kink events. But you do see people who are into bruising. There are people out there who are into impact play, and they can be very proud of their bruises and like to show them off. Those bruises typically aren't on the neck and aren't created with the mouth. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old female living in the Bay Area, and I had a question about being catcalled. I'm fairly attractive, and I get my fair share of uh, catcalling like many women. But the other day, I experienced something that made me significantly more uncomfortable than usual. I was walking in my local park trail uh, wearing tank top and fairly short running shorts, but nothing too risque. Uh, when I passed by a group of rough, uh, older-looking gentlemen uh, sitting around a picnic bench, and as I passed by, uh, the normal cat calling started. However, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed uh, one of them take out his cell phone, and begin, he began to snap pictures of me. I could tell he was taking pictures because of the snap sound that his uh, phone made. So my question is, what does a woman do in this situation? I was too nervous for my safety to confront them. So what other options do I have? Uh, and also, is this a thing? Unfortunately, this is certainly a thing. Definitely a thing. Asshole dudes in public feeling entitled to catcall or ogle or even take photographs of women. These asshole dudes, I wouldn't describe them as a gentleman, which is the term of art you picked. But these asshole dudes are out there. And what should you do when you encounter them? You know, it would be wonderful if everybody could dack an asshole who engaged that. Although you don't want to escalate and I'm not advocating physical violence, confront the asshole. Tell them that that's not okay. But you have to act in your own best interests in that moment. And if you felt unsafe, what you do is extricate yourself from that situation. I have been in not an identical circumstance, but I think a kind of similar circumstance, at least as experienced, where some group of guys will call you a faggot. And you have to decide in the moment, am I going to stick up for myself? If I'm, am I going to push back? Am I going to flip that person off? Am I going to yell at that person? Which could potentially make matters worse for me? Or am I going to 
ignore that asshole and keep on running or walking or going wherever the fuck that I was going. And there have been times when I have decided to confront people when I have pushed back hard. And there have been times when I went, you know what? There's eight of them and one of me and today's not the day or there's six of them and two of us. And I don't feel like risking your life just because I would like to go deck that guy. So we're going to walk on by. So I don't think that you have betrayed your gender and I don't think you have failed feminism if you don't get in someone's face at a moment like that. I think you have to protect yourself first and foremost. But if you can confront someone who engages in those sorts of behaviors, I think it's a good idea to do it. But you need to make a spot assessment of the risk, the physical risk, the emotional risk versus the potential reward of somehow stripping the asshole out of that person and making them a little less assholey to the next woman who should jog by in running shorts or a thong or whatever the fuck she wants to wear while she's jogging. Uh, hey, Dan. Uh, I am a 49-year-old uh, gay guy, married guy, living in the South. And uh, just recently, uh, this past weekend, in fact, I traveled uh, to a neighboring state to watch the eclipse happen. And it was very cool. But while I was there, um, my husband and I were walking down the street in a uh, kind of medium-sized college town uh, right next door to the state that this college town is in. Uh, they recently passed and then repealed parts of a bathroom bill. So that's kind of the area where we're talking about. Anyway, it's a college town and it was time for the kids to come back to class, back to school. So it was move-in weekend. And as my husband and I walked down the street, we passed by a young couple, male couple, uh, holding hands. And behind them was, uh, I, we believe there were one of their fathers, uh, older gentleman who was, you know, kind of walking behind. And it was kind of an unremarkable moment. These two guys walking down the street, it wasn't the gayberhood or anything like that. It was just part of town. And I felt like I needed to acknowledge them in some way. I wanted to give them a thumbs up or something like that. But then I thought, why draw attention to it? It should be normal. It should be cool. It should be no big deal. But I felt like it was a big deal, especially in this town, in this city, in this part of town. Uh, I don't know. Did I, should I have acknowledged it in some way? Should I have just let it go like I did? Um, maybe I should have reached over and grabbed my husband's hand as we walked past just to let them know we're in solidarity with you guys. Or I just felt it was a really nice moment and I really wanted to acknowledge it because even in this day and age to see two guys holding hands is, is still a little bit rare, um, especially in that part of the world in the Southern United States. And so, I don't know, did I do the right thing by not acknowledging? Would it have been weird if I did acknowledge these two guys holding hands? The dilemma here is if you should, you know, smile at them or tell them right fucking on, nice to see, hey, good on your dad, you could in that moment make what had been on their part, hopefully, and this is the world we all want to live in, an unselfconscious gesture, taking each other's hand, you could make them very terribly conscious of that gesture and maybe spoil the unselfconscious aspect of it, which is the world we want to live in, where it is literally no big deal, where no dude who's dating a dude or no woman who's dating a woman hesitates to take their boyfriend or girlfriend's hand in public because it's no big thing. But we don't live in that world, and it is a thing. And while it shouldn't be a big deal... It almost always is. 
there's almost always that moment's hesitation, that moment's self-consciousness where someone in a same-sex relationship scopes the environment, takes a quick look around to make sure that there isn't an alt-right white supremacist Nazi march coming up the other side of the street or whatever it is that you fear it might be. And so I think you could have risked a smile and a nod at them as a gay couple, as their future husbands potentially perhaps. And it wouldn't have ruined the unselfconscious, no big deal ishness of the moment because I promise you that there was to some extent, to some degree, hopefully a small and diminishing degree with younger generations of queers, there was a moment of self-consciousness before they took each other's hand. And some subtle communication from you in that environment and some subtle communication from a stranger in that environment that not only wasn't the gesture offensive, but that you were touched by it. I think that would have been welcome. It would have helped bring us all a little bit closer to that world we want to live in where it is no big deal, where people aren't self-conscious about taking the hand of their same-sex partner in public. That said, you have acknowledged it. This call acknowledges it. So even if in the moment you see something like that in public and you don't want to spoil it for them by making them more self-conscious, sharing the story with your friends, sharing the story as you just did on this show is a way of bank shot acknowledging them and, and their bravery and what they were doing and how they were living their lives and how everyone should be free to live their lives. So you didn't acknowledge it in the moment, but you have acknowledged it. And their small gesture touched you and you have, in a sense, paid it forward, as the saying goes, by calling in and sharing the story. And I'm sure you've also shared the story with your friends and with your family. So they threw a stone into the pond and created a ripple with your help that continues to spread. Hey, Dan. Uh, I was calling to inform you that I will be attending the Film Festival when it comes to Sacramento, early September. And my question is, so I'm going to be at this porn film festival uh, with a lot of sex-positive people in the audience, and after the show, I have a motel room booked, and the motel's less than a mile from the venue of the film festival. Uh, how do I bring this into a positive for me to get late? I know a lot of you, you and your listeners might be thinking, this is a fucking situation. Sex positive people all horny up from watching porn. How do you not close this deal? I don't know how. Um, I'm 33. Uh, I'm not a virgin, uh, but I don't have a lot of experience. My sexual estimates are few and far between, and oftentimes I have to pay a sex worker. I just don't know how to close the deal. I'm not a 10. Um, I'm far from a one. I, I just don't know how people do that sort of thing. You know, meet someone in a bar, go home with them, be it a one night stand or turn into a relationship. I'm, I'm, I would like all of the above. So yeah. Uh, and I know it might be a little short notice to have it happen at the night of the film festival, but I guess in general, like how do people do that? Like that aspect has always uh, not been something in my arsenal. It's important as you move through life to have what I like to call realistic expectations. It is unrealistic to expect that just rolling into hump, the porn film festival, which attracts a lot of 
sex positive people is going to drop some pussy in your lap. So unrealistic of you to book that motel room in expectation of just being handed pussy on a platter because you happen to be one of the folks who attended the porn festival that night. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but often what I see at hump, usually what I see at hump are people coming with friends and lovers, dates, couples come to hump, throuples come to hump. Every once in a while, somebody comes with their mom to hump, which kind of freaks me out. I wouldn't go to a porn festival with my mother and I'm a pretty sex positive guy myself, but more power to you and your relationship with your ma. If that's the kind of thing that you can do with your mom on a Saturday night, humpfilmfest.com. If you want to get tickets for you and mom, So I want you to go to hump and I want you to enjoy yourself and I want you to be open to possibility. That's how people do it who can close the deal. They're open to possibility, but they are not simmering with resentment. They're open to possibility, but they don't have unrealistic expectations about the likelihood of anything in particular happening at any given time or any given moment. So people who can close the deal, people who have game are usually pretty relaxed and at ease. They don't raise the stakes in any particular moment by doing things like laying money out for a motel room in the hopes that they'll get laid because that can then result in them seeming desperate to get laid because they've already sunk costs. They've already spent some money on this motel room and that's going to go to waste if they don't find somebody right now tonight at this part of the to get laid. And that aura, that energy that someone exudes when they go into anything with the expectation, perhaps the unrealistic expectation, that they're going to get whatever it is that they want out of that moment, that's unattractive. That drives people off. People can smell that, that sense of entitlement or that unrealistic expectation. And so you want to eradicate that. You want to be a little zen and you've got to be a little zen. And I know it's hard for someone who hasn't had a lot of romantic or sexual success to be zen about it, to be at ease and at peace about things happening or things not happening. But that will make you more attractive. That will make things likelier to happen if you can be a little zen about whether or not they happen. There are people out there in the world who have a lot of sex. There are people out there in the world who can basically snap their fingers and have anybody they want or that's how it seems right because they can just line it up and knock it down doesn't sound like you're one of those people you know what i'm not one of those people either i don't have great game i stumbled into a relationship with the person i'd been jacking off about all my life and then one day met and it happened by accident and somebody with game pushed me at him if that didn't happen if a friend hadn't shoved me at my husband and told me to talk to him i would never have spoken to him in that moment that we met you need some wingmen you need some friends who can do that for you, can play that role for you. Because you know that for whatever reason, that left your own devices and on your own, you can't close the deal on your own. I can't either. I'm right there with you. I am the same. So go to hump with a friend. You don't have some friends, make some friends. And if you don't have friends, then you need not tickets to hump or in addition to tickets to hump, you need a therapist You need someone that you can work with on your interpersonal skills so that you can begin to attract people. People with a lot of lovers often tend to have a lot of friends too. Attractive people attract people, not just people that they're going to fuck. So go to Hump. Please enjoy Hump. There will be a lot of sex-positive people at Hump. Almost by definition, you have to be a sex-positive person to get those tickets and show up at that screening. But be at ease, be at peace, be zen about whether or not anything is going to happen. And tell yourself that most likely nothing will happen. You will not get laid. Go in there with no expectations. And then you will be 
potentially delighted if something should happen, and grateful if it does rather than resentful if it doesn't. And get a therapist. Get someone to talk to. A lot of men actually pay sex workers for the conversation, and sex workers often have a really good read on the things that you may be doing that may be turning off people who might want to fuck you for free. So if you're seeing a sex worker regularly, you might want to ask for an honest critique and an honest download from that person. Most people I know who do sex work are very compassionate. They like the guys who are their clients. I know a lot of sex workers who've helped guys who are their clients transition from only being able to get laid when they paid for it to being able to get laid without having to pay for it by being not just their sexual outlet, but by being their therapist. So enjoy hump. Be open to possibility. Don't have unrealistic expectations. Don't be desperate. Don't be resentful and get help. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old gay male and I have been in a monogamous relationship for a year with someone who I really thought I was going to marry and spend my life with. And I just found out that he has been blowing guys in steam rooms this whole time. And the irony here is that all along, I said I was open to open relationships and multiple times tried to have conversations about what that would look like and what we would what we would do, what we wouldn't do, what would be okay with, what we wouldn't. And at no point did he ever mention that he was sleeping with other people throughout this entire time. And I'm just, I'm really having a hard time wrapping my brain around it. What does that mean? I mean, how does someone who's presented the option of an open relationship just continue to lie through their teeth? What does that even look like? How do you, how do you reconcile that? You ask why someone who, you know, an open relationship, an honest and ethical open relationship was on the table, why that person would do what your boyfriend was doing. And the answer is because he wanted to do what he wanted to do. He didn't want to negotiate with you about what he, he was allowed to do or not allowed to do because blowing guys in saunas appears to be his jam. And what if that wasn't okay with you? Yeah, no, I mean, that's honestly was my greatest fear was like that he just kind of was selfish about it and wanted to do something instead of having an honest conversation. And so when now that you're having a conversation about what he's been up to, and I'm curious how you found out what he'd been up to. How did that happen? An STI, ah. which we actually think it's one of the ones that shows up, can come back after a period of time. Mm-hmm. So it's po- highly possible that this actually didn't come from that, especially where I found, so like I found a bump on his ass mm-hmm. and then I found one on my dick a couple, a couple weeks later. And if that's all he's doing in a steam room, that really wouldn't make sense of why that was there. Um, the genital wart. You're sexually active gay men in your late 20s. Right. So the odds that you yeah. both have been exposed to HPV over the course of your life are very previously high, right? are very, very high. And so we right. don't want to, you know, we don't want to be slut shaming, irrational infants about this. It, it seems like, not, you know, yeah. by my reading, this sexually transmitted infection would seem to be unrelated to your boyfriend's activities in the sauna if they were limited to what he described. And even even if they weren't limited to what he described, it's probably unlikely that there's a cause and effect here that can be established or even exists. Right. Uh, not the greatest way to explain to your boyfriend that this is what's been happening or mm-hmm. something you would like. It's interesting that your boyfriend took the opportunity of this sexually transmitted infection, which could be unrelated to his activities, to come clean with you about what he'd been up to? Well, 
I mean, what happened was we didn't have sex the night. Uh, when he, he had been out of town, he came back. We didn't have sex the night before. And then we woke up in the morning and he just like got up and walked into the shower. And then I was like, is that, and he just kind of tried to pretend like nothing was weird about that. <laughs> I walked into the shower like, uh, is there something you want to tell me? Because it doesn't really feel like you're just running late for a meeting or you have to be somewhere. It feels like you're avoiding something right now. So I kind of forced the hand a little bit. And that's when he revealed to you he had a he had a wart on his butt and you had a wart on your dick? No, I, I, I had seen those. So, mm-hmm. I had previous, so the full story is I found them. I had texted him and said, hey, I found this bump and I had seen one on you. I think we should both get them looked at. Because mm-hmm. in the moment, you're kind of just like, I don't, I don't know, this could be anything. It could just be a pimple. It could be something. And then, you know, when it wasn't going away, I was like, both of these things are probably HPV. more than that. Right. Right. But, but how in this conversation about HPV did the whole sauna games come out? Well, so at the start of this relationship, I had said, you know, we talked about what our terms were. And mm-hmm. I had said, I don't really care if you make out with someone in a bar every once in a while. I don't care if you give a hand job in a steam room every once in a while. And I had assumed, potentially wrongfully so, that that was the start of a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he took that as, like, permission. And mm-hmm. so in the shower when we were talking about all this, he was like, well, you know how you said I was okay if I could do that. Well, I've been doing that. And I've also been blowing guys in the steam room. And I was like, I had no idea mm-hmm. what was going on. Thought we were going to talk about it. And he thought you had talked about it. No, I, I think he knew that that was wrong. We had had like one brief conversation that I said, this is sort of something. Cause we've had a number of conversations where we've talked about monogamy isn't something we want in the end game, mm-hmm. but I had always sort of said, I don't really feel like we're necessarily there yet. The relationship's only a year out at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't feel like that's fully something we're ready for yet. Okay, so but zooming out for a second, you were open to having a non-monogamous relationship and open to having an open-ended non-monogamous relationship with him. You pictured him as someone you might want to be with for the rest of your life. And he knew that. And he got over his skis or he began doing things that he could rationalize to himself that perhaps he already had obtained your consent to do. And that's a self-serving rationalization on his part. And I think a dishonest reading of the conversation Mm -hmm. that you described having with him on his part. But Mm -hmm. you need to ask yourself, you know, in a sense, your boyfriend moved you into a house that you thought you might want to live in someday. And he moved you into it right now. And that wasn't okay. You don't move people into houses. You don't buy a house without talking to your partner. And you can be angry about the fact that he just went and did it. If you're interested in staying in this relationship, you need to ask yourself, do I want to live in this house? And do I want to live in this house with someone who would do this? With someone who would, who's clearly revealed himself to you as a person who will engage in self-serving rationalizations to avoid conflict, to get what he wants, to have the freedom to do what he wants. And you're, you're in a position to assess whether, you know, about his, how remorseful he is, about, you know, these conversations that you're having now, now that it's all on the table, about whether or not you think you can trust him going forward. Trust him with your physical safety, your emotional safety, your sexual safety. Trust that he's going to be honest with you. And, and some people like having secrets. Some people like having a secret second life. Some people want the dishonesty, not because the dishonesty allows them to have the sex that they want, but the dishonesty is something that they enjoy or the deceit, that secret second life. And if he's that, then that's not going to stop. He's always going to have some 
Yeah. Something's going on that you don't know about. So you need to drill down with him about what the fuck this was about. Yeah. And what motivated I mean, the other thing, the other thing too is like, I had also found out that he had Grinder on his phone and had promised that it was just talking. But there's just a lot of, like, it seems like each new conversation we have, there's like something else we uncover that I'm yeah. like, well, Jesus, uh, when was that happening? Oh my God, Occam's Razor. You know, I, you know, there are people out there definitely who have Grinder on their phone just to chit chat. They annoy a lot of people who have Grinder on their phone because they're looking for dick dick, not chit chat. And your boyfriend might have been one of them, but. Somebody who's already blown dudes in showers, knowing that's a violation of his relationship and the agreement he has with his current boyfriend, that guy with Grinder on his phone, the obvious answer is probably the truth. And the obvious answer, he's probably been hooking up with people from Grinder too. You know, it's a short jump from my boyfriend says it's okay for me to give hand jobs to guys in the locker room, maybe, to, well, if I'm giving a hand job, I might as well suck the dick. Too. Well, if I'm already sucking guys off in locker rooms, what's the difference between sucking a guy off in a locker room or sucking a guy off quickly in his apartment because we hooked up on Grinder? Like, there's the steps in this rationalization process that have allowed probably him to do much, much more than you are comfortable with. And he hasn't been honest with you. That's what I would encourage you to go drill down with him about. Is part of right. the turn on the dishonesty? And the, I think it might be. And the secret second life and, and me being an idiot and a fool and you getting away with things. And for some people, that's it. There are people in relationships who don't mind that their partner has secrets and kind of enjoy the fact that their partner is a mystery to them or maybe doing more than they're aware of and are kind of aroused by it. You're not that guy. There are guys out there who might enjoy having for a boyfriend a dude who has secrets. But if you're not going to be comfortable in an open relationship or in a relationship with someone who is deceitful and has secrets and puts you at risk in ways emotionally or physically that you're not comfortable with or that you can never trust in in the sexual realm or any other realm, not to take a statement of, well, maybe at some point and then just run and do whatever the fuck he wants to do because you said, well, maybe at some point we could blank. We've only got a year invested yeah. in this guy. Unless he has some really great explanations uh, and not rationalizations and not bullshit and you feel comfortable and you feel you can trust him again, you've only got a year in, you might want to get out. Right. Yeah. Do you already live together? No. No kids, no pets, don't live together. It's easy enough to walk away for sure. I mean, hardest have been done. Easier have been done. But. Could you live with a boyfriend who you couldn't trust out of your sight? I don't think so. I really don't. It wouldn't turn you on to have a boyfriend you couldn't trust out of your sight? No. Probably not the probably not the boyfriend for you then. I'm so sorry. It's all right. I mean, tough advice, but you're here for. I'm sorry, dude. I'm I'm really sorry. You're 27. Okay. You're really, you're really young. You're really young. And you're <laughs> and and you're you sound really rational and reasonable and you need a rational and reasonable guy who can have a rational and reasonable conversation about openness and not be a deceitful sack of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. I'm so sorry. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Hey, Dan. Divorced. Father of two. Um, I really fucked up, I think. Uh, My daughter, who is eight years old, was looking on my phone 
earlier today through my photographs. Um, and just now, later in the evening, I realized that I had a couple of pictures of my dick on there, all ready to uh, be sent to my girlfriend. Uh, my daughter did not say anything, but I can't imagine how she did not see them. I feel like a real irresponsible shitbag and don't know what to do. Um, do I bring it up to her? Do I wait until she says something? Help. This isn't a conversation that you can duck. You're not going to be able to wait until your daughter brings it up, particularly because there's an ex-wife involved here. You are divorced. You have an eight-year-old. You are co-parenting. You don't mention what kind of relationship you have with your ex-wife, but if you have a high-conflict relationship with your ex, what could happen if your daughter were to go to your ex-wife and say, dad showed me pictures of his dick? How would that play with your ex-wife? Do you have a good co-parenting relationship? Did you part amicably? Are you on friendly terms? Is your ex-wife sex positive? Does she also send and receive dirty sex with the guys that she's dating? Or is she sex negative and that's one of the reasons you're divorced? Something you need to think about as you weigh what to do. In the end, though, you are going to have to address this. Even if your wife was totally cool, you are going to have to address this. And if your wife is totally cool and totally sex positive and you have a good and amicable relationship and a good co-parenting relationship with her, I do think you should mention this to her that this happened and that you need to have a conversation with your daughter about it. And then that conversation needs to be an age-appropriate conversation about what your dick was doing on your phone. That adults flirt in this way, oh, brave new world that has such apps in it. This is how adults flirt. Sometimes adults will take naughty or risque pictures of their privates and share them just with one other special person that they love and that they trust. And then emphasize the trust part. But it's nothing that a child should see or do and you want to apologize to her for leaving those pictures where she might stumble over them and you will take steps to make sure that that doesn't happen again. It would be good to enlist your wife in advance of having that conversation with your kid because after you have that combo, the odds that your kid will ask mom about it too, jump. But I think this is something you need to get out in front of instead of waiting for your daughter to bring it up with you or to bring it up with your ex-wife. I think you need to bring it up with your daughter in an age-appropriate way. You need to bring it up with her. And at eight years old, your daughter knows what sex is and she knows how adults are. She's encountered a lot of media in her life. She's witnessed the relationship that her parents had with each other, the relationships that her parents are now having with others. So she's not oblivious to the existence of sex and desire and attraction and flirtation. This is one manifestation of the flirt, one way that people do it. And that's why those pictures were on your phone. And I think your daughter at eight years old can handle that information. And it's better for her to have that information than to wonder why those pics were on your phone and how it is that she found them or why you let her find them. Good luck, Dad. Hi, Dan. I am a 34-year-old male who's pretty sure he's gay. Um, I've explored the side of my sexuality for the last few years um, but have not come out to any of those that are the closest to me. So the background is um, I've not done this in part because of two things. So the first is I've had a history of pretty much modeling a lot of behavior on an older brother of mine, and he came out as gay to my family many years ago. So part of me feels that me coming out now 
almost is stupidly in my own ego, um, a copy of what he's done. The second is coming from a conservative family. Um, I feel there's a lot more pressure on me to be the only one that would be leading a normal heteronormative life and coming out as gay in a family with only two kids, um, especially when the other has already come out as gay, might just devastate my parents. So any thoughts as to how I could tackle this? I think it's pretty obvious. I think I should be authentically myself, but uh, this is just doing my head in. I can't say that I feel your pain, but I am familiar with your predicament, with the painful predicament that you find yourself in. One of my first boyfriends was so upset. He was one of two kids. He had a younger brother, and his younger brother came out the year that he was planning to come out to his very conservative parents. And then his parents freaked out at his younger brother and dumped on this guy, my boyfriend, all of their hopes and dreams and expectations around one of their children leading a heteronormative lifestyle, one of their children having a big church wedding, one of their children presenting them with grandchildren born the old-fashioned way. And it would have to be him because his younger brother was a cocksucker. He was too. He was sucking my cock at the time. And he felt really boxed in. He felt like he couldn't do this to his parents. He couldn't come out to his parents because it would devastate them, that they would be destroyed. And in the end, he came out to his parents and they were devastated, which is a temporary condition, and they got the fuck over it. In the end, they were not destroyed. They muddled on. They adjusted to the news. Your parents, if they have come to a point where they love and accept your older brother, and I promise you, you are not sucking dick because you look up to your older brother. That's not how it works. I look up to my older brother, Bill, very much. He eats a lot of pussy. I eat none. Not how sexual orientation works between siblings, I promise. They can get to a place where they love and accept you too. And even though you're not going to lead a quote-unquote heteronormative lifestyle, what does that even fucking mean these days? You've got gay people who are married and monogamous and have children and married and non-monogamous and have children. And you have straight people who are unmarried and have no children and are polyamorous and have 30 partners. So this idea that there's one hetero lifestyle that straight people live and one sort of dangerous queer lifestyle that dangerous queers live is a little out of date. So you can still one day perhaps present your parents with grandchildren or not your choice. But your parents, they can't start to get over the news that you're gay until you deliver it to them. And every day that you don't come the fuck out already, every day that you avoid telling them the truth is another day that you have to live with the stress and the pressure of knowing that one day you will have to tell them this truth. And at that point, they will explode. Get the explosion out of the fucking way. Tell them now. You're 34 years old. Time's a-wasting. Tell them now. And enlist your older brother, whom you look up to. Enlist your older brother's help. Open up to him about the fact that you are gay as well and ask him how to game out sharing this news with mom and dad. Oh, uh, in the end, my ex-boyfriend who had the younger brother who came out before him, parents happily went to their weddings, not to each other, their separate weddings. They both married guys and mom and dad ecstatic to be at their weddings and support and love both their sons uh, and their son's husbands that they regard also as sons. So, 
devastated though they were when their first son came out and devastated times 10 as they were when their other son came out, they got the fuck over it. Your parents can too, but they can't start getting the fuck over it until you give them the news. Hi, Dan and the at-risk tech-savvy youth. Uh, Me and my partner have been living together for two and a half years now, and um, he's struggled with substance use problems. I have two in the past, but I've sort of gotten mine under wraps and his are sort of still up and down. Uh, There was a period about a year ago where he was using cocaine pretty heavily and there would be times where he would get quite aggressive during sex and that he'd, you know, wake me up, um, sort of having sex with my feet or drinking off near me, you know, me not wanting that, uh, just trying to go to sleep before work. And one night I woke up to him actually fully penetrating me and having sex with me. And um, I tried to fight him off and say, I said no multiple times. And he like held me down, wouldn't let, wouldn't get off me, wouldn't stop. Um, I literally had to take the phone and threaten to call the police for him to get off me. We have since he apologized for it. You know, he got much better. He's not using as much, half as much anymore. But I find now uh, it's really hard, even though it's been about a year, to have sex with him. I find, um, you know, if he initiates, I kind of tense up. Once it starts going, it's great, but, like, I never want it. Um, I kind of freak out. It's like body memory stuff, I guess. So my question is, how do you forgive and let go of it bought it like I forgave him emotionally but how do you like get your body to forgive he apologized for it it meaning raping you he apologized for that time that he raped you yeah it's understandable that uh, you would tense up and freak out every time your rapist with whom you live initiates sex you say that you've forgiven him emotionally. Uh, how do you get your body to forgive him? Maybe you can forgive him emotionally and leave him bodily. Maybe you should listen to what your body is telling you, which is get the fuck away from this coked up, rapey ass, not rapey, rapist asshole. I'm not sure how you will your body to forgive. And I'm not sure that even if you could, that that would be the best choice. He's still abusing cocaine. He's still the asshole who raped you. And I think you should dump the motherfucking piece of shit rapey asshole already. I think you need to listen to your body. This isn't just your gut telling you something. This is your entire body telling you something, which is get us away from this guy. He ain't good for you, for us, for anybody. Get away from him. And rather than Encouraging your body to stick around, to make the leap that you made, your brain made, I would encourage your brain to listen to your fucking body. Dump this motherfucker. Move the fuck out. Get help. Get a therapist to talk about your trauma, which is manifesting itself in the reaction you're having every time your rapist with whom you live initiates sex with you. That's something you need to talk about at greater length with a professional not the snarky faggot with the sex advice podcast advice opinion about what could or should be done. Anybody is entitled to an opinion and entitled to share that opinion when asked, but you need professional help from someone who works with survivors of rape and you are a survivor of rape. 
who needs to get the fuck away from her rapist already. Hey, Dan. I'm an 18-year-old straight boy, and I've been sexually active, and I've had a few sexual partners, and every time that I have sex, it's good. I enjoy it, and it feels good, but after a while, it gets to the point where no one has been able to make me come. And so it always gets to the point where at the end, I just sort of jerk myself off and then that's how I finish. But no one has been able to make me come. And I don't know if it's just because I'm young and maybe I have some kinks or something that I haven't discovered or that no one has uh, experimented with me. Uh, maybe it's just a lack of experience. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I mean, I one time it got to the point where I was having sex for almost an hour and a half, and I never, I couldn't come. I had to, I had to make myself do it. So I was just wondering what you might be able to say or offer me any input or really anything um, that you could say would be great. There's nothing creepy about me asking you to jump on Skype and let me watch you masturbate, is there? Because I have this hunch, I have this suspicion that this is a technique problem. We call this in Savage Loveland death grip syndrome. That when you masturbate, when you pleasure yourself, you grip your dick with a ferocity that no mouth, anus, or vaginal canal could ever grip your dick. And the inability of mouth, asshole, vagina to provide your dick with sensations upon which your dick has become dependent over the years that you've been jacking it is what's preventing you from being able to climax in the moment. There is a course correct. There is a fix for this. Uh, it takes time, effort, and commitment, but people have had success with this approach, which is you have sex, you enjoy the sex, you go for as long as you'd like to go, as long as your partner would like you to go, and there's a lot of people out there who enjoy a dude who can last forever, and then if you don't come from the vaginal, the oral, or the anal, you just don't come. You don't pull out at a certain time and start jacking off because if your dick knows that the cavalry is coming in the form of your right hand or your left hand, in the end, to rescue it from its cumless state, your dick's going to hang in there. Your dick's going to hold on. Some part of your reptile brain is going to tell your dick, don't worry, just it'll come, you'll come, the hand will come, and you'll come. But if your dick gets to know that it's just never going to get off unless it finds some new way, unless some new neural pathways are carved between the nerve endings in your crotch and the pleasure receptor centers in your brain, you're never going to come. You also might want to stop masturbating. And if you are engaged in death grip syndrome masturbatory style, you might want to vary that technique. You might want to start using a looser grip, a little bit more lube to replicate the sensations of partnered sex. All that said, sometimes this is just how our genitals work. There are guys out there who've carved such a deep groove in their own dicks with their own hands that they can't come through partnered sex. They can't come. Somebody else can't make them come. Uh, and that can be fixed with the approach that I've described. There are, however, some guys who this is just how their dick works. And there's no amount of starving the dick of your hand that's going to fix this. The only way to figure out which one you are, you've carved a groove and you can carve a new groove or this is just how your dick works, is to dedicate – the next six months or a year to the course correction approach that I have unpacked for you. Enjoy partnered sex. If you don't come, you don't get to come. Eventually your dick in desperation is going to figure out a new way to come. If after six months or a year, you still ain't coming, 
then you'll just be one of those guys who's going to have to pull out at some point and use your own hand to get yourself to the point of what they call orgasmic inevitability and then shove it back in, jump back in. And you can come with and in someone, but you might be one of those guys who needs to push yourself to that line and then re-engage with your partner. And that's a fine thing to be. And we wouldn't shame a woman who needed to play with her own clit in order to climax. We would say that's how her orgasms work. This could be how your orgasms work. But there's only one way to find that out for sure. If this is how your orgasms work. If you are fated to always be dependent in this small way on your own right hand. And that is to shake up your masturbatory routine and to not use your hand during partnered sex. Even if that means you don't get to come for the next six months. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-something Jewish lady living in the Midwest. I am dating a guy who, for all intents and purposes, is a very progressive person, which is why I was very concerned and upset when I was relaying to him a story about how, in the aftermath of Charlottesville, that I've had some funny blowback from friends on so, mostly social media, let's be honest, um, that there has not been conversation around Jewish identity um, in the aftermath of Charlottesville. And when I bring it up to friends, you know, challenge them to defend and protect Jewish friends and to reject anti-Semitism, um, friends have been telling me that it's not as much of a priority as the fight for people of color right now, which I completely understand people of color, immigrants, other groups in this country are much more deeply under assault than than Jewish people are. But I do think there's something to the fact that anti-Semitism isn't a part of this conversation. And when Jewish people bring up, you know, please be active and vocal about anti-Semitism, that there is a lot of pushback or trying to diminish the role of anti-Semitism in the white nationalist movement. So I relate this all to my boyfriend, back to the main point. And he was really inhospitable to this conversation. And let me preface this by saying our relationship is a bit rocky already. Um, But when I brought this up to him, he completely shut down and even went as far as to say Nazi movements, neo-Nazis aren't targeting Jews at all, that it's not about Jews um, at all. Um, not just are they not part of the of the picture, but it's it's not about Jews. I think that's ridiculous, preposterous, and it made me feel really upset. Have you had conversations like this? How do I sensitively highlight the anti-Semitism that it was rampant in Charlottesville? Shouts of blood and soil, shouts of Jews will not replace us. Um, how do I talk about this in context of the fact that, yes, there are groups in this country who are much more deeply under assault, who are much more deeply marginalized, who are not safe, that Jews um, are conditionally white, that we pass in this country and therefore are much more safe. How do I have the conversation about my pain as a within my Jewish identity while at the same time prioritizing or centering or respecting the fact that there are groups who are much less safe than I am in my conditionally white protected identity? 
Joining me to help tackle this question, Mark Joseph Stern, a legal writer for Slate and a frequent uh, voice on many of Slate's excellent podcasts, and the author recently of This is a Safe Space, No Jews Allowed, Why Are Some American Progressives Embracing Overt Anti-Semitism? Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, before we get to the call and the questions raised by it, can you tell us a little bit about this piece that you wrote? Why are some American progressives embracing overt anti-Semitism? Where do you see that anti-Semitism raising its head and how is it being embraced by the left? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this summer in Chicago, we saw two events, the Dyke March and the Slut Walk, uh, two fairly well-known progressive events uh, that oppose bigotry and support uh, equality and, and, you know, progressive values. Intersectionality. Uh, Intersectionality specifically, that's right. These groups took a sort of hardline stance against, quote, Zionist symbols. Uh, what happened first was that the Dyke March, uh, a group of Jewish women had um, a rainbow flag with a Star of David on it, um, and they were interrogated about what the flag meant, whether it was a support for Israel, uh, and when they failed to denounce Israel with sufficient vigor, uh, they were expelled from the event, uh, and the event's uh, um, organizers endorsed that decision afterwards, uh, and following that, uh, the Chicago Slut Walk uh, adopted a similar stance. They said they would not tolerate any kind of Zionist symbols uh, that does not inherently include a Star of David rainbow flag, uh, but if you do carry one of those flags, you basically have to explain yourself, uh, and essentially what, what the Slutwalk said was that if you are openly Jewish, you will be subjected to a litmus test. Mm -hmm. uh, if you show any kind of Jewish symbols, you have to explain why you are doing it, and you have to basically denounce Israel, uh, promote Palestine, uh, and tow the party line, or else you will be ejected. Uh, and I, I wrote that uh, really what's happening here is pretty much just basic raw anti-Semitism. Uh, anytime you are subjecting a group of people to heightened scrutiny simply because of their identity. You are engaging in a form of bigotry. That's all that's going on here. Uh, and so no matter how the Dyke March and the Slut Walk want to dress up uh, their new rules, uh, at bottom, they're just anti-Semitism, old wine in a new bottle, uh, and they're just entirely unjustifiable to my mind. So I'm sure you got some criticism or pushback for this piece. It's not the left that's embraced. The Slut Walk and the Dyke March, as progressive as they might be and as valuable, I think, institutions that they might be, uh, you know, it's not the DNC. It's not, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders organization. It's, it's these two small sort of progressive demonstrations that have embraced this. Do you detect other sort of strains of anti-Semitism in the more mainstream left? Uh, you know, I... I, I'm glad you asked. I think that there is an anti-Semitism problem in the in the sort of far left fringe of the uh, of specifically of the LGBTQ movement in America, but also more broadly. Uh, and you saw this about a year ago uh, at the Creating Change conference in Chicago. Uh, you may remember uh, this is a, another uh, progressive conference for primarily LGBTQ groups, and there is an organization called A Wider Bridge that is a uh, a liberal 
national pro-LGBTQ organization that connects basically gay rights activists in Israel and gay rights activists in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, They put on a demonstration uh, at uh, this Creating Change conference uh, just to uh, talk about what their work and uh, they talked with some of their partners in Israel. Uh, And this huge group of people uh, who were attending the conference opposed uh, this uh, talk and actually got together, marched down the hallway, burst into the room where the event was taking place and shut it down, prevented it from happening, uh, alleging that uh, a wider bridge uh, represents the oppression of Palestine and Palestinians, uh, and that because all uh, forms of oppression are interconnected, uh, that it was necessary for this, uh, this event to be shut down and that creating change uh, needed to denounce any kind of group that has connections with uh, the state of Israel, essentially. Uh, That, to me, is also pure anti-Semitism. A wider bridge is not a propaganda group. It does not have especially close ties to the Israeli government. Uh, Its mission really is just promoting LGBT rights in both countries. Uh, And so what these these, uh, protesters basically said was that the group was tainted by its mere connection to Israel, to the Jewish state, that simply by having a connection to the country, it was participating in the oppression of Palestinians, uh, and and it should not be permitted to participate. Once again, that's the kind of assumption uh, that the left draws all too often, I think, that anyone with a connection to Israel, or even anyone Jewish, uh, is is promoting the oppression of Palestinians. We do do need to note that the the state of Israel, not every Jew on earth, the state of Israel has engaged in uh, uh, oppression, straight up uh, oppression of uh, you know, the occupied territories, uh, Gaza, the, the deprivations there, the walls, the seizing of, uh, uh, of, of land for new settlements, that there is, there is shit going down in Israel that's fucked up. Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. You won't get any argument from me on that. Uh, you will from my hardline right-wing Israeli relatives, but <laughs> we don't talk about these things on Facebook. But, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. The Israeli government is, is awful, but the Israeli government is not Israel. It is not the entire country. It doesn't speak for the entire country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to conflate the two, I think, is almost doing the work of the uh, right-wingers in the Israeli government who want to pretend that they speak for everyone there. It's not true. There are many Israelis who vigorously oppose the settlements, the oppression of the occupied territories, discrimination against Palestinians, and to just wash them away, exclude them from the conversation and say that Israel itself, uh, the entire country of Israel and all of its people are bigoted and oppressing Palestine, that rings some alarm bells for me. Okay, let's talk about this call. Let's talk about this 20-something Jewish lady in the Midwest who is distressed, as we all were, by what went down in Charlottesville. And as a Jewish person, she saw those Nazi flags, the blood and soil chants, the Jews will not replace us chants, and felt that there was anti-Semitism at work here. For fuck's sake, they're goddamn Nazis. Of course there's anti-Semitism at play here uh, on the far right, the white supremacist neo-Nazi right. And she brought that up with her boyfriend, and he wasn't having it. 
No, he wasn't having it because he felt, I think, if, if I understand her call correctly, uh, that even though they were saying things against Jews, that Jews are not sort of the, uh, the most vulnerable group at this moment, that uh, the Nazis are, pose more of a threat uh, to black people, to Latinos, and of course this is, uh, we have a white nationalist administration now mm -hmm. that poses a, a horrible threat to um, immigrants throughout the country, to racial minorities. Uh, and so I think what the boyfriend was essentially saying was, look, you need to buck up. This isn't about you. You are a well-off Midwestern Jewish lady whose people are pretty successful in this country. Stop worrying about yourself and your Jewishness and, and you know, your sort of circle uh, and start uh, worrying about everyone else who I perceive to be more vulnerable. You think that's a fair reading of, of his stance? Uh, I do think it's fair reading the stance. Shall we now both of us join hands and advise her to break up with this asshole? I was I was going to take a little bit of a softer tack because <laughs> I, I am a bit of a romantic at heart, uh, and I was going to say that what she really needs to do is, is take him out to dinner in a public place uh, where he cannot raise his voice uh, against the Jews uh, in, in a way that uh, will you know uh, not draw attention to him because uh, if he's in public then he's probably not going to start ranting and raving about how the Jews are all powerful so that's a good safeguard. Uh, but she needs to sit him down and say. Listen, listen, oppression is not a zero-sum game. Uh, it isn't today. It has never been. Intersectionality expresses a fundamentally correct truth, which is that it's often impossible to untangle the web of oppression uh, that society has created, and that in, in some very fundamental sense, all forms of, of repression are connected and interrelated. However, that does not mean that acknowledging the oppression of one group group requires you to ignore the oppression of the other, uh, nor does it mean that the fact that one group of people are doing pretty well in some context, uh, just because they are you know, succeeding here, uh, that they never face discrimination in any other context. And, and, and as I see it, you know, emphasizing to, to Jews, not that I think most Jews would need to have this point emphasized to them, that these assholes who are attacking immigrants and people of color are also coming for and at you would bring these more successful, I guess, quote-unquote, people to the barricades with the other more marginalized, arguably more oppressed in this particular moment, groups and, and peoples and identities. And isn't that to the good? Isn't that for the better? Absolutely. Of course, the barricades they... Rather than fewer people at the barricades? If you say to people, you know, this isn't about you. No, this is about you too. They were also chanting, fuck you faggots. And the KKK this week called for people to kill gay people. Like, it's not... You know, the more people who understand that this is a threat, not just to immigrants, not just to people of color, but to all of us and to most of us or more of us, how is that not intersectional? How is that not creating a bigger, broader movement? It's not about weighing who's more oppressed in this particular moment. And we can acknowledge who's, you know, who's suffering more at this particular moment. But for everyone to understand that they're coming for you, too. What's that fucking poem? By the time they came for me, there was no one left to speak up for me. 
Yeah, exactly. These motherfuckers always come for the Jews. It is always, the Jews are always on the shit list with these guys, okay? Even if they aren't number one on the shit list, they are there in the mix. Nobody who is marching in the streets against blacks or in support of Confederate soldiers or against women or gays, none of those people also love the Jews, okay? <laughs> the truth is that the Jews are always going to be on the shit list. Uh, and so what this guy needs to understand, and what I, what I hope that this woman can make him understand is that, like you said, uh, acknowledging Jewish fears at this moment is a form of solidarity. Like you said, it's a form of Jews saying, yes, we are part of this struggle. Historically and contemporarily, we are together in this. We are all being targeted. We are all subjects of oppression here. And so we all need to fight back together. And that doesn't mean that you have to ignore or diminish or minimize the particular advantages or disadvantages that one specific group in the coalition may or may not be experiencing right now. It doesn't mean that you have to say, oh, well, Jews are doing well, so they're out for now. You get out of the barricades. We don't need your help. Mm -hmm. No, that's not how it works. We all have to fight back against this shit or we're all fucked. And it doesn't make any sense to kick the Jews out just because there's a Jewish state over in the Middle East and just because, I don't know, there are a lot of Jews on television and, you know, most of us are doing decently well for ourselves in this country. So I want to circle back to the very beginning of the call where she said they have other problems and the relationship is kind of rocky. And then this, then this happens. And so uh, I'm going to advocate for dumping the motherfucker already. If there were other problems that she doesn't unpack for us that, that were going on, other things that were giving her pause about continuing to be in a relationship with this guy. And then this goes down. Yeah, lady, go, go, leave, dump the motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, here, here's my question for her. You know, she's in her 20s. I assume that she wants something serious out of this. But how are you going to have a successful relationship or partnership with somebody who refuses to acknowledge the historical oppression of your ancestors and the continued contemporary discrimination against uh, Jewish people today? How can you have a healthy relationship, a mutually supportive relationship built on just a basic foundation of trust and understanding uh, between each other if your partner is constantly saying, oh, shut up, Jew, this isn't about you, uh, in so many words. It just seems like a kind of a lost cause, to use a term we've been hearing a lot lately. Uh, so to, to me, yeah, I mean, give him this one chance at least to educate him. Maybe this is her last duty in the relationship. You know, she's come this far. Sit him down at, at the Olive Garden and say, because he doesn't deserve anything nicer than that, but sit him down and say, look, this is, this is where I'm coming from. This is what I'm talking about. I really do not think that you are correct about this. And, and give him one last chance to atone. And if that doesn't work, then yeah, dump the motherfucker. He's really not worth more than like a 45-minute wait at Olive Garden with breadsticks and salad. Mark Joseph Stern, legal writer for Slate. Check out his stuff. Uh, it is awesome. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. Uh, hey, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old uh, single gay male in British Columbia, and my question is about circumcision. I've been thinking about getting circumcised for a while now, but I'm hesitant because it sounds scary, it's permanent, obviously, and because of how it might affect my relationship. Um, basically, my forcing doesn't roll back when hard. Um, it's painful if a guy accidentally tries rolling it back to say a hand job or if I try topping. And so that's one of the reasons why I usually bottom. 
However, I've tried, I talked twice in the last eight months, and both times were pain-free and been fun, so I've been thinking about talking more lately. I didn't feel much those two times because my foreskin, I think, was still covering the head, but it was still nice. So I want to talk more, and getting the surgery would help that. However, I do wonder how this will impact my relationships because a lot of guys uh, that I've been with are into uncut dicks. And on top of that, um, I like pig play as well, which means that I like, you know, BO and stuff. And many of my partners tend to be into um, like a funky smelling foreskin. Uh, sorry for grossing you out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I love it when a sexual partner is into the odor of like my nether region. And so getting the surgery means I wouldn't be able to offer an uncut cog, uh, smelly or not, to my future potential partners or long-term partner. I considered the surgery five or six years ago and would have preferred a partial circumcision, but the two urologists I spoke with only offered regular circumcision, and I was busy with grad school, so I decided against it. But things are different now. Turned, I turned 30 and starting a new career and have a renewed optimism for finding my future partner, so I've revisited the idea of surgery. So I could use your help in deciding, because on one hand, getting the surgery would make me would allow me to talk more with future potential partners, but on the other hand, the surgery would make, may make me less desirable to my future partner, also a potential. So I'm having trouble balancing these hypothetical scenarios with a very real and permanent surgery. What you have is phimosis. It's a condition where the foreskin doesn't retract. It doesn't pull back over the glands of the penis. And in some cases, that can be very painful. It doesn't sound like it's particularly painful for you, just kind of inconvenient and annoying. But there are treatments for this short of surgery. There are steroids that you can apply creams to the foreskin that thin it and hopefully then make it easier for it to retract. And you have surgical options if that doesn't work short of full circumcision. You can get a slit put into your foreskin that that opens it up, that doesn't deprive you of any of your nerve endings or any of that delicious, funky stank that you and your sex partners enjoy so much because you will still have your foreskin and you will still have then – the smegma gathering under it for all to enjoy uh, without having to have the whole thing cut away. You need to make an appointment to discuss this issue, to discuss your medical condition, your problem with a urologist and discuss your options with that urologist. If the only option your urologist lays on the table is chopping off the entirety of your foreskin, go get a second opinion from another urologist because phimosis can be treated successfully without having to uh, get a full circumcision, without having to get your entire foreskin cut away. Hi there. I'm just calling in regards to episode 568 about the woman who was concerned that her boyfriend was potentially sleeping with an ex or had really close relations. I think that whether or not he's sleeping with her is like redundant. I think that her boyfriend is definitely emotionally cheating on her. It just is too close for comfort. I think this woman needs to, you know, if you're going through his texts and if he's hanging out so much with an ex, even if it's friendly, there seems to be like no respect for any sort of boundaries with the new relationship. Um, so I think she needs to end this relationship, cut him off um, and be done and not be friends with him. Hey everyone. I'm calling in response to the caller who found text messages of her boyfriend and his ex while she was shower, he was showering there. Um, yeah, you need to definitely not stay with this person. Even if you have a little bit of crazy in you about it, like Dan said, you tell somebody that you're showering at your ex's house. 
And also, I feel like you just need to trust your gut. Like, you know their flirtation is a little more than normal, and that doesn't sit right with you. If you felt like nothing could happen, then you would feel comfortable with even a little bit of flirtation. I have experience of, you know, an ex of mine going back to her ex, marrying her, and then having babies. So, and when they started becoming friends again, it didn't sit right with me. And she worked with her ex the whole time. But yet, when their relationship got more intimate is when it started not to feel right with me, and I was right. Whether you tell them you read the text or not, to me, is irrelevant. You know what you know. Get out of it. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the woman in 568 who found poop porn on her boyfriend's old computer account. I think a key piece of information that was unclear from her call was if the ex-wife poop stuff was photoshopped into the memes. If you just digitally added the shit, then that strongly suggests that he hadn't involved his ex in this aspect of his sexual fantasy. From her call, it seemed that they both were GGG about their sexual interests. So if he didn't disclose the poop thing, then he probably wants to keep that part just in the realm of internet make-believe. If I found poop pics on my husband's computer, I would just be grateful that he didn't feel the need to involve me. She should definitely not discuss it with him. If he's not inclined to bring it up with his significant others, she does not need to live in fear about him involving her somewhere down the road. All she needs to do is at some time, when appropriate, just casually bring up the fact that she doesn't find feces stuff erotic and he will get the message. And we're going to leave it there. Before I give you the phone number, go to savagelovecast.com. We have a brand new shiny website. You can get the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast at our website. You can also subscribe to the Magnum edition, which is nearly twice as long and has no ads. The ad-free Magnum edition, extra guests, extra questions. Subscribe to it at savagelovecast.com. If not, continue, please, to enjoy the micro edition. All right, 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment, and we love your comments for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Tickets are on sale now for the Hump Film Fest in Seattle and Portland. These are the voting screenings where audiences get to pick the best of Hump. If you're in Seattle or Portland and want to vote on the best of Hump this year, get your ass to Seattle and Portland. Go to humpfilmfest.com follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow mark joseph stern on twitter at mjs underscore dc savage love cast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth we'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the savage love cast Thanks.